and fish together. And I don't know how many times I got my cricket hopper stuck in a reed or stuck on a, stuck on a branch or even worse, stuck on like a part of Ryle's head. Um, but one thing I usually noticed whenever we went out on the water was how easy it was for the boat to drift. So we'd, we'd usually start out a good ways from the reeds, 10 or 15 yards or so, and fish out toward the reeds. But little by little, slowly but surely, if there was even the slightest bit of wind blowing, slowly but surely we would begin to drift toward the reeds. And, soon, and pretty soon we'd find ourselves saying, okay, we're really close to the reeds. We've got to bring ourselves back out. It was just so easy for the boat to drift. Sometimes I can remember... Um, Turn, uh, turning the opposite direction and fishing out toward the open water. And I don't, I don't know if the fishing was better out that way, but it was the scenery was better and it was a good change of scenery. So I would do that for a little while. But if I did that sometimes for a few minutes, I would look back toward the reeds, which I think are far away, and I'd find out that I'm all up in them. I'm, I'm right up against these reeds. And it didn't feel to me like I had went anywhere. I was just sitting still on the water. But I didn't know it, but I was drifting and we're going to talk some about drifting tonight, drifting in terms of our walk with the Lord Jesus. And my hope is that we'll be confronted with the proneness uh, of our own selves to, to drift. Even as Christians, we're prone to drift. I hope that we'll all see the very sobering truth that falling away from the Lord is not always a sudden or dramatic thing. Falling away from the Lord is not always a sudden or dramatic thing. In fact, very often I think it isn't sudden or dramatic. So with that, let's, let's look at this passage together and see what it has to say to us. Verse 1, Therefore, that's the first word you'll see if you've got a King James, Therefore, now let's stop and think about that for a minute. I'm not going to take this much time on every single word, don't worry. But... <laughs> It's often been said that whenever you see that word therefore in Scripture, you should find out what it's there for. And I think that's pretty good advice because that word therefore shows that whatever the writer is getting ready to tell us, it's going to be based on something he's already told us previously. If you were here the last time I preached, we worked through the last 10 verses of chapter 1. And we saw there that the writer's main purpose that he wanted to emphasize to us was um, that Jesus was greater than angels. We saw that while angels are God's servants, Jesus is greater because he's God's son. We saw that while angels are created beings, Jesus is greater because he himself is the creator of all things. So here at the beginning of chapter 2, that word therefore is drawing our mind back to that major emphasis that we saw in chapter 1, that Jesus is greater than angels. Therefore, verse 1, we ought to give the more earnest heed or pay more careful attention to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. Now, where it says let them slip, most modern translations are going to use the language of drifting. So the ESV says we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Because in all reality, the word of God is what's steadfast. It doesn't move. It stays put. 
We are the ones who slip away from it. We are the ones who are prone to drift away from it. Now, you might be wondering what all of that has to do with Jesus being greater than angels, because I said there was some logical connection there uh, between Jesus being greater than angels and this statement that we're seeing in verse 1. So what's the, what's the connection there? Well, I think that it becomes a little bit more clear if we look at verse 2. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, that's the key, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Again, if you were here last time I spoke, you might remember me mentioning that whenever uh, Moses was given the law back on Mount Sinai in the Old Testament, it was actually an angel who brought him the law, or angels. And there's a couple places in the New Testament where that's taught. And I think it's based on a statement that we find in, in Deuteronomy 33. And so that's what, it's, that's what it's talking about there, the word spoken by angels. It's talking about that Old Covenant law. And the point is to say, If the old covenant law was given by angels and it was authoritative for God's people, and if that law had to be paid careful attention to and it had to be carefully obeyed, then how much more careful attention should be given to the message of the gospel, which was not given by angels, but by the one who is greater than the angels. In fact, the one who created the angels by the Son of God himself. That's who gave us the gospel. It's interesting here the kind of, kind of reasoning that's used. It's, a, it's an argument from the lesser to the greater. basically goes like this. If that, how much more this? If you think algebra is tough, how much more difficult are you going to find calculus? Not that I would know from experience. I never made it to calculus. But that's an argument from the lesser to the greater. If that, how much more this? And this was a standard kind of way that Jewish interpreters would reason in a way that they would, that they would think. And you might be able to think of other places in Scripture where you see that kind of reasoning used. I think of uh, where Jesus says, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. Or when he says, if God watches over the birds, how much more is he going to watch over you? You're far more valuable than the birds. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. And I think that's what we've got going on here in this passage. Is the writer is saying that if the law was authoritative and God's people had to pay careful attention to it, then how much more careful attention do we need to pay to the gospel How much more attention needs to be paid to the once-for-all salvation that God has provided in Jesus? Notice in verse 2 that God has zero tolerance for sin. Every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense or a just retribution or a just punishment. I think of number 16 where there was a group of people who were rebelling against Moses. And what did God do to those people? Well, he caused the earth to swallow them up. And they were buried alive into Sheol, the place of the dead. God does not take kindly to sin. And following the logic of the passage, if that was God's attitude 
toward the sin of his people in the Old Testament who were, given the, who were given the Old Covenant law, don't think that he has somehow lightened up a little bit now that we're in the New Covenant. Think of Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. What did they do? They sold some of their property. They got a lot of money for it. And then they wanted the church to think that they were giving all the money to the church. But they weren't giving all the money to the church. They were keeping back some for themselves. And Peter looked at Ananias and he said, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And God struck Ananias dead. And his wife too, right after that. God does not take kindly to sin. Now, I'm not suggesting to you that God is going to strike you dead the next time that you sin. Praise God, he probably won't. But I do think that there's room for us to consider the fact that he would be perfectly within his rights to do just that. He does not take kindly to sin. So don't take sin lightly. Kill sin. Mortify it, to use the language of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8. A Puritan theologian named John Owen made a famous statement. He said, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Take heed to that. If you've begun to take your sin lightly, and I think you've already begun to drift away from the Lord. In verse 3, we see that the, the only way for us to escape from the judgment that our sins deserve is to cast ourselves completely on the great salvation that's been accomplished through Jesus. Verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? That's a rhetorical question. It's a question that makes a point, and the point is this. You won't, you won't escape if you neglect so great salvation. Notice that this salvation is indeed great. And I like what Matthew Henry said here. He said this salvation is so great because it was accomplished by a great Savior. It was accomplished by that Savior that we got a glimpse of at the beginning of Hebrews in the first few verses. The rest assured he knows how to save. And he's accomplished a perfect salvation for anyone who will believe on him and submit themselves to his lordship. And the rest of verse 3, this salvation at first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. Verse 4, God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and with divers miracles or various miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. One of the things that's, that's unique about Christianity is that it opens itself up to historical verification. A lot of religions of the world are almost entirely spiritual in nature to such a degree that you can't really verify its claims. You can't really verify them on a historical level. But Christianity is unique in that it opens itself up to that sort of criticism. It invites that kind of investigation. I think of what the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15. He said that Jesus had risen from the dead in accordance with the scripture and that he appeared to some 500 people, many of whom were still alive at that point, and you could go talk to them and they'd tell you that they saw Jesus alive. So 
I think the resurrection of Jesus was certainly one of the most significant signs and wonders that God used to bear witness to the truthfulness of the gospel message. But then it would continue on right, right through the book of Acts with the ministry of the apostles. The skeptics started to see that there was something real going on whenever a group of Galileans started speaking in languages that they had never previously learned. People from all over the place were coming and hearing the mighty works of God being spoken in their own native language, is what it says. And this was all because of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Because that same God who had confused the languages of mankind at the Tower of Babel, he was showing that language barriers were not going to get in the way of his gospel being preached to every nation. And then signs and wonders continued to happen right through the book of Acts. The lame were healed, the dead were raised, and all of these things were demonstrating that the message of this great salvation was, in fact, true. Now, in terms of applying this passage, I think that there are two groups of people that this, that this passage can apply to. And um, these two groups comprise the whole human race. You are either a believer or you are an unbeliever. There's no middle ground here. There's no third way. You're one or the other. And the first group that I'd like to address is um, any unbelievers who might be here tonight or who might stumble across the audio recording of this message and decide to listen to it for whatever reason. I pray that people would. I spoke a little bit earlier about God's zero tolerance for sin. And the reason that that is such bad news for the world is that every human being is guilty of it. Every human being is guilty of sin, and that includes you. And one thing that the writer of Hebrews wants you to know is that there is no possible way for you to be freed from the judgment that your sins deserve aside from looking to Jesus, casting yourself on the salvation that he's accomplished by his death and resurrection. When you stand before God, and you will stand before God, and when that day comes, it will not matter how good you were to your family. You cannot escape. It will not matter how much money you gave to charity. You will not escape. It will not matter how good you were to your neighbors. You cannot escape. You cannot escape if you neglect the great salvation that God's provided through his son. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except by me. So come to him. Avail yourself of that great salvation that he has accomplished. Don't neglect it. Come to him and be saved. That's my first application, and it's directed to unbelievers. But now I want to speak to those of you who are believers, and I take that to be most of you. Um, I think we need to remember that this passage and this book of Hebrews as a whole was written to believers. And so believers are the primary group of people that the writer's got in mind as he writes this passage, which shows us that even as Christians, we need to be mindful of our own proneness to drift away from the Lord. Now let me speak for a minute, um, just as, as someone who, who holds to that, 
that, um, that view that often goes by the name eternal security or once saved, always saved. I imagine many of you um, who are here tonight do as well, though perhaps not all. Um, I believe those things. I, b- I believe what often goes by the name eternal security, that, uh, that God preserves every individual who is genuinely born again so that they persevere to the end. I believe those things. Trust me, I do. But the point I want to make here is that you can take a doctrine like that, that I believe to be right, and you can let it take you into ways of thinking that are not biblical. You can let a doctrine like that take you into thinking, well, it doesn't matter what I do if I'm saved because I'm saved and it doesn't matter what I do and I'm always going to be saved. And so it doesn't matter if I drift or sin or whatever. It doesn't matter. You can let a right doctrine take you to wrong implications. So my, my word to, to you who, who think like me in terms of that particular issue is that if your theology does not allow you to take seriously the warnings that you see in a passage like this in Hebrews or scattered all throughout the rest of Hebrews or scattered all throughout the Bible, if you can't take seriously those warnings that were given to believers, then I think you've let your doctrine take you to a way of thinking that's not biblical. Believers are prone to fall away. Believers are prone to drift. We sing about this all the time, don't we? In that famous hymn, Come Thou Fount. What's that line? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Do you mean those words when you sing them? Do you feel your own proneness to, to drift away from the Lord, to leave the God that you love? Hebrews wants to warn you about that. And this is just the, the first of several passages that you'd see if you kept reading through Hebrews that warn believers against falling away, against drifting. And one of the important things for us to realize here is that drifting does not take any effort. Think back to my boat illustration. All I did was sit there in the water and I drifted. You don't have to do anything in order to drift. In fact, that's how you drift. You don't do anything. You don't meet with God on a regular basis in his word or in prayer, and you'll drift. Don't meet with God's people on a regular basis at church or sit under the word preach on a regular basis, and you'll drift. One thing that came up today in my Sunday school class was how God uses our church family to keep us accountable and to deter us from sinning. So if you're ever tempted to sin in a particular way, I think it's entirely reasonable and appropriate for you to be restrained from that sin on some level by wondering, what would my pastor think? What would Sister Alta think, whom I love so much? What would my Sunday school teacher think? I think there's a place for that. Now, obviously, your main concern should be what God thinks. But our church family is something that God's put in place in our lives for our good to sanctify us and to guard us so that we won't drift away from the Lord. If we're going to keep ourselves from drifting, it's going to take getting out the paddles. It's going to take putting down the the troller motor so that we can get back to the place where we are supposed to be. Drifting doesn't take effort. 
It takes effort to keep from drifting. Drifting doesn't take any effort. It takes effort to keep from drifting. So if you are seeing some warning signs in your own life, your, your prayer tonight uh, might be, Father, I'm drifting, and I don't want to drift. I want to be near to you. So, Father, please give me a heart and a resolve to get back into a close communion with you where I need to be. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. I don't want to drift away from you. Keep me near to you. The last point of application I want to make is this. Remember what verse 1 says. um, Well, that sounds weird. Remember what verse 1 says about the specific way that we keep from drifting. Look back with me at verse 1. Give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. That's what we ought to do. We ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard. Earnest heed. Careful attention. Now, how might a command like that impact the way that you listen to sermons? Think about sermons for a minute. I think this is interesting. I saw an estimate uh, the other day. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was just how many sermons the average Christian will probably listen to in his or her lifetime. I can't remember the exact number, but it was in the thousands. I mean, I'm wanting to say somewhere between seven and 10,000 or something like that. I don't know what kind of math they were doing or, or, or how long this, this person would be, this average person would be a Christian or anything like that. But I don't know how they figured it out um, or even if I've got the number right, but in any, in any case, Christians listen to a lot of sermons, don't we? Why? It's, part of what we? it's part of what we do as the church, is listen to sermons. Why is that? Why is it that we spend so much time listening to a guy talk like you're doing now? <laughs> well, I, I think it's because that uh, God has ordained preaching to be one of the ways for his people to hear the word, to hear it read, to hear it explained, and to hear how it applies to their own life. Paul was writing to Timothy in terms of a, a local church context when he, when he gave that famous command to preach the word. But do, do the words earnest heed or careful attention, do those words describe the way that you listen to sermons? How well can you talk about a sermon after you've heard it? Can you summarize it? Can you tell what the main points were or what uh, certain things stuck out to you? Uh, A lot of times we can't, I'm afraid. uh, Jonathan Edwards, who was a pastor and theologian in New England in the 1700s, he he said in one of his sermons that if you were to ask someone what, what a typical, you know, on a typical Sunday, if you were to ask someone what the sermon was about, they, they typically can't give you any better summary than if they had just stayed home the whole time. And here's a guy preaching in the 1700s. Now, this is nothing new, folks. This is, this is a universal human tendency. We zone out. We're prone to forget things that we hear, or we just zone out during them. Do you shut off your mind? whenever the preacher starts talking, or at least whenever he gets past the, the introductory story and joke or whatever. Do you shut off your mind? Do you think rather about what you're going to have for lunch 
while the word's being preached, or who you're going to invite over after church, or do you use the sermon time to sort of organize in your mind your, your coming work week and all the things you need to do? Um, do you just mentally drift during the sermon? Now, I know that not every preacher is gifted in the same way in terms of his oratory or his ability to speak well. I mean, some of you might be, might be used to more fiery and exciting preachers, and you're, you're listening to somebody, somebody like me thinking, what in the world? What This guy has got to get it going. <laughs> I understand that. But we, we don't pay careful attention because of who it is that's speaking. We pay careful attention because of the word that's being preached. That's why we pay careful attention. There was a great line. Charles Spurgeon who was obviously um, someone who was, who was incredibly gifted and well-known for his abilities as a speaker. Uh, his grandfather once introduced him before a sermon, and uh, Spurgeon's grandfather was introducing him, and this is what he said about his grandson, Charles. He said, He preaches better than I do, but he does not preach a better gospel. That's good. That's real good. Hmm. <laughs> We don't pay careful attention because of who's preaching. We pay careful attention because of the word that's being preached. How well can you remember things that you hear in a sermon? Now, I'm not one to say that you've got to remember everything that you ever hear in every sermon you ever hear, ever. I'm not saying that. I don't, I don't, I don't think that's, that's true. Or, or else it was a waste of your time if you can't, if you can't remember everything. I don't think that's true. Um, the Bible often compares the Word of God to food, like bread, or the pure, spirit, the, the pure milk of the Word. So just thinking in terms of that analogy, I can think of, or I can't think of them, but there are plenty of meals that I've eaten in my lifetime that I, that I don't have any memory of. I can't remember having eaten them. Uh, I can't tell you what I ate or, or what it tasted like. Uh, but that doesn't mean that those meals did not contribute anything to my physical health. They did nourish me physically. And I think in a similar way, um, we can sit under the Word. And as we consume the Word, and so there, there, it does require opening your heart and opening your mind to receive it. And as you consider it thoughtfully and honestly, and as you pay attention to it and think of the ways that it applies to your personal life and uh, you, you, you think of ways that it, that it bears on your own life and the way that you think and live. As you do those things, when you listen to sermons, I believe that that's in itself transformative and spiritually nourishing to your soul as the Word washes over you. Regardless of whether you can actually recall that sermon a year or two from now, I think there's still, there's still a benefit. But with that being said, I do think you should make an effort to remember the main point of a sermon, or at least the main points, at least till next Sunday. <laughs> or at least until the next time that you hear the word preached. So as you listen, I, I would encourage you, as you listen to a sermon, try to think of the ways that you could boil down what the preacher has said into, into, one, into one main point. And can, it, just think of one sentence. Put, it in one, put the main point of the sermon in one sentence and commit that to memory. Hold it in your mind. Don't let it slip, to use the language of verse 1. Let it steep. Recall it whenever you've got your quiet times throughout the week. Um, bring it, recall it to mind. 
Now, since I plan to suggest this practice to you tonight, uh, I figured I would remember what the main point of Pastor Johnny's sermon was this morning. And um, it was this, as I, as I remember it. Redeem your time for the glory of God because your days are limited. Redeem your time for the glory of God because your days are limited. Now, I think it would be great for you to commit something like that to memory and daily think on it and let that, let that one-sentence summary call to mind other things that you, that you remember from the sermon. Just, just remember the word. This is, this, is how, this is one of the ways that you can, that you can take heed and, and be obedient to this command to, to pay attention to the things that you have heard. Now, if you're wondering what the main point of this sermon is, I'll make it easy for you. It's this. Pay attention to the things that you've heard so you don't drift away from Jesus. Pay attention to the things that you have heard so that you don't drift away from Jesus. That's what I have for you tonight. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray for everyone who is here, myself included, that you would give us an acute awareness of our own proneness to walk away from you. Make us aware, Father, of our own proneness to drift. Father, we are sinners. And it is the natural inclination of our heart to move away from you. So, Father, by your Spirit, I pray that you would create in us a new heart, that you would restore to us the joy of our salvation, that you would help us to stay close to you. And I pray for anyone who may be here tonight who does not know you, who does not have a relationship with you through your son Jesus. That today would be the last day that they ever neglect the great salvation that you have provided through your son. Father, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Wow. Take it away. Thank you, Joel. What a powerful message. You know, as we come to this point, the question is, what are we going to do with the word that we just heard? Man, that, that's so powerful. In just a moment, you're going to stand, and I want to ask you to respond. Um, we, we've been told to take earnest heed or careful attention to the words that you've heard. And, you know, the word says, what are we going to do if we neglect such a great salvation? As a matter of fact, when, when the writer of Hebrews wrote Hebrews, I, I think this is interesting, and, and Joel may have brought that up in a message that I've not heard, but Hebrews is one of the books we don't really know who wrote the book. And I, there's a lot of debate. Joel posted a, a post, you know, this, this week on the Internet. It's very interesting to, to read about that. But I, I think most of your writers will say that the reason that God chose to keep that hidden because the whole focus is on Jesus Christ. Because Christ is better than Moses. Christ is better than the angels. He's better than all things. And 
God, God says, I, I even choose to keep the writer of this book hidden because your focus is on Christ. But the sad thing about that, as it was written, who was it written to? The name of it is to the Hebrew people. And if there's one thing that we see of the Hebrew people, they were always prone to turn their back on God. That even though they saw the miracles of, um, of the plagues, and even so they saw that the, the sea parted, even though they saw that water came out of the rock, even though so they saw manna fall from heaven, that in just a few days they would be grumbling today and, and turning back away from God. Folks, people don't change. Because we are still prone to wander. We are still prone to drift. And we are prone to turn our back on the one that we have seen clearly work in our lives. And, and so that's just the great warning that he's writing to these people. He says, I know how you are. And I'm just warning you. And folks, that includes every one of us. It's so interesting the language that that Joel used because the end of last year I was just struggling in my spirit and I needed someone to talk to. I needed someone to pastor me or counsel me. Yeah, pastors need counseling too. And I, I went to a brother in Jacksonville and sat down with him. And, you know, it, it's kind of humbling for the pastor to go and just seek counseling. I just need someone. You know, one of the first things he asked me, he looked in my eye, he says, John, have you drifted? Have you drifted? Same words. Because we're all prone to drift. And I thank God that he was just frank and straight up with me. And I think that's the, the, the question I need to ask you tonight. Have you drifted? Do you have the fire? Do you have that personal relationship? Do you have that that you had in the past? Or as, as, as Joel says, it's just gradually kind of just... Drifting is not, not a great event. It's just something a little bit at a time. I'm just challenging you tonight. You may just want to come and say, God, I want to be back where I need to be. I've kind of drifted over into the reeds. And hadn't even realized it, Lord, until I turned around and I found, you know, I found myself over in the bushes. But folks, we have to be honest. We have to take careful heed to the word of God. And I just, I just challenge you tonight as the Holy Spirit spoke into your heart. If you're an unbeliever tonight, if you've never received Christ as your Lord. You know, there's nothing left for you if you neglect such a great salvation. <laughs> if, if you turn to anything apart from Jesus Christ, you're neglecting that great salvation. God will not tolerate because God can't tolerate sin. I ask you to come to Jesus tonight. Believer, I just ask you tonight, have you drifted? We're all prone to drift. You may just want to come and say, God, help me get closer to you. Help me to get back to where I need to be. Is the Holy Spirit speaking to you? I invite you to stand as we sing. Wow, what a great word. The altar's open, my friend. I invite you to come. Just come back. Come back. Come back. The altar's open as we sing.